The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Financial News Edition. My name is Trista Kelly. I'm Deputy Editor of Financial News here in London, and I'm joined today by Carson Block, Founder, CIO, CEO of Muddy Waters Capital a Hedge Fund. Thanks for being here today, Carson. Yeah, thanks, Trista. Uh, Carson, I wanted to get into so many things with you today, and I know that uh, whenever we talk, we have a really long, interesting conversation, so I'll just jump right in. Uh, let's get started with the meme stock craze. It's When I talked to you last year, uh, I think since then it's evolved quite a bit, and I'd love for you to get your thoughts on that. Uh, what do you think of shorting meme stocks? Do you invest in meme stocks? Do you avoid it altogether? Are you just kind of watching from the sidelines? Well, the short answer is, for the most part, I watch them from the sidelines. Um, I think it's difficult to short them. Just It's all driven by flows, basically. And there's a lot less liquidity. I think retail in general has a lot less liquidity than they did in, in early 2021, late 2020. Uh, but liquidity that retail does still have, occasionally you see these paroxysms of um, call buying and stock buying, and it just floods into some of these meme stocks and pushes them up. So uh, our business, fortunately, we don't have to go and look around and say, okay, well, you know, what seems like it's really overvalued here? Okay, this doesn't make sense. Let's just go short it. I mean, we're as activist short sellers, we look for things that are where there are information asymmetries and things that the market doesn't know. And that's the thing when you look at when you look at the meme stocks, like what can you tell somebody who goes long AMC that they don't know already? I mean, they, you know, I mean, they they basically they don't care. It's you know, they, they are proudly trading in the face of awful fundamentals. So again, as a short seller, uh, I mean, look, there are short sellers out there who I'm sure are good short sellers and who do like to short those. But for me, if, if I can't say something, if I can't tell the long something that they don't know, there's just no point in my shorting it. And what do you think about the narrative that, you know, the hedge funds versus these retail investors, you know, how, how do you process that? Yeah, I, I think that's a really I think that's a false narrative. And um, look, I I read a, a book recently um, called um, on the game on the GameStop in particular um, squeeze. It was called The Revolution That Wasn't by Spencer Jacob. And he goes into who I mean, there were lots and lots of winners on Wall Street during the first meme stock craze. There were I mean, when you look at Robin Hood. I mean, Robinhood and all of these brokers that offer commission-free trading, basically payment for order flow, they massively won. And what's also really interesting when you look at it is that the, the, all those stocks really started to ramp at early on in COVID when sports gambling globally was shut down with the exception of Korean baseball. And so when you look at 
um, the attributes of gamblers. Generally speaking, the younger you are, the less likely you are to be a gambler with the exception of sports betting. So a lot of what ended up happening with retail money that flooded into the markets in 2020 was people who was basically men, younger men who otherwise would have been punting on football or baseball or whatever, um, bored and putting that money into and into the market. And it was aided by this idea that it's commission free. And so there's academic research that shows that when many things, many goods and services, when you say to somebody, hey, this doesn't actually cost you any cash, then people will use it a lot. And so by bringing this big tech mentality from Silicon Valley of we're not going to overtly make money on you, we're not going to charge you money, but you're basically you are the products that we sell by taking that model and grafting it on top of trading. It was this perfect storm where you had a bunch of retail investors who are you know, retail who was bored and couldn't gamble and were just lulled into this, this sense that they were getting something valuable for free when in fact they weren't. And so that's a lot of what drove the trading in the, um, you know, in these, in these really high, high beta names, um, late 2020, early 2021. And yes, we still see vestiges of that, but, um, yeah, I just, it, but basically, you know, large companies in the form of, um, in, in the form of Robinhood, et cetera, they won, Citadel, Virtu, they won because of the uh, payment for order flow. And a lot of hedge funds were on the long side of those squeezes as well. Um, there was also that uh, Mudrick who, you know, made a killing, uh, I think it was an AMC. So, you know, this is, some obviously you get the, the the odd retail investor like the Keith Gill who just you know killed it with multi generational or well generational wealth, um, but that's the exception to the rule. A lot of retail got smoked in these things, and it wasn't you know I mean it's basically yeah this I, I totally agree with the title the revolution that wasn't. Um, of course, I, <laughs> a lot of my information does come from that book, but it matches it matched my observations as a market participant at the time. And can you also kind of conflate, is it fair to conflate a bit the meme stocks and crypto? And what do you think about crypto? I know a lot of people always try to ask me, what does Carson Block think of crypto? Uh, oh God, well, <laughs> I don't know. I I mean, when I get asked that question, I mean, my my first response is like, look, I, I don't think of, of it. I mean, to me, it's a, it's not a real asset class in the sense that it doesn't have much in the way of intrinsic value. I mean, there are the, what I, th I think it's like, a, they call it the gas fees. I mean, the fees for um, processing transactions on those blockchains. But aside from that, I mean, my view, it's it's almost entirely tulip. And yes, I get that it's when you have this situation in which we just have central banks dumping liquidity and governments dumping liquidity into economies and into markets, these things can shoot up in value. But aside from, I mean, the only real use case for most of these, honestly, would be money laundering. But the reality is the U.S. government is pretty good at tracking transactions in Bitcoin. And so it's not even a great way to launder money. Um, I think if you if it were to be in order for crypto to be a serious asset class, it would have to be pegged. You know, the, this concept of a stable coin comes into play. 
But then, you know, I, I, I haven't looked at this, but there are people in my space who've done some work on Tether and they think there's some serious problems there in Tether, which is supposed to be the stable coin. And you saw it with Luna. So when you have the lack of regulation of these stable coin providers, that kind of blows that out of the water because basically if there's an opportunity for people to take money, they will take money. Um, at least that's the view I think people should have. So, but can you make money punting crypto? Of course you can make money punting crypto. I'm not saying you can't. Um, and I'm not going to tell you that the world's fiat currency system makes total sense either. And there, you know, there's certainly, there's certainly issues, but, um, you know, is, is Bitcoin or these other crypto coins, are they, are they real? And do they, do I think that they have the potential to sustain these values over the long term? That I do not, but I haven't looked into it a lot. Um, but to me, it just seems like it's another bubble. And when we've looked around or especially you know, going, even going into COVID, I and mean, there are a number of things when I looked around and I said, yeah, this is kind of, it's like the everything bubble. I think people were using that term even before COVID. And then on the back end of COVID, the everything bubble really became the everything bubble. Hmm. But what about shorting names in crypto? Isn't, couldn't that be a gold mine? Hmm. The fraud potential there. Well, so there have been some short theses on certain crypto miners, especially the ones in China, um, because, you know, if, if you overlay the fraud that I think so crypto, I believe, is endemic, is rife with fraud. And then China is, too. So if you look at, you know, China and crypto, there's a pretty good intersection of stuff that can go wrong. So I've seen some short theses of crypto miners uh, from China, um, then also some crypto miners here in the US. I mean, there was a company that um, we were short for a little while that was originally just listed in London and then also got a US listing called Argo Blockchain. And there were questions about uh, land real estate transaction that it did in Texas in terms of the valuation. And, I, I don't, I mean, I don't know that, we, you know, I don't feel like we ever got to the bottom of it to the point where we felt satisfied that, you know, the company didn't overpay or that um, it did, in fact, massively overpay and what would have happened to the money. But yeah, there, uh, you know, there are just in this space, there's so much fast money, so many people flooding into it, wanting to make a quick buck. And I mean, just like, you know, my, my econ professors always used to say, there's no such thing as free lunch. So when you get that kind of froth um, or you get that kind of attention and money suddenly flowing into a space, you're going to have a lot of bad actors and a lot of things that you'd want to short regardless of the fundamentals, long-term fundamentals of crypto. I mean, a lot of these things that you could that you could or could have shorted in the crypto space were shorts regardless of your views. I mean, you could think that crypto is going to be in 10, 20 years time, it's going to be ubiquitous. Um, but there were still a lot of bad actors in the space. You mentioned China. I'd like to go into that more. How are you approaching China these days? I know that there was a, um, a recent, you know, a Congress passed in 2020, a, a law that U.S. stock exchanges could get kicked off by 2024 if they can't certify that uh, U.S. inspectors could look at their audits. How do you think that's going to play out? And I know that you have a lot of opinions on this. You've tweeted a lot about it. Can you 
tell the audience, which by the way, I want to remind the audience to submit questions onto the Q&A. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot that I could say here and I'll, I'll try to nutshell some things, but there, so the reality is the SEC had the authority years ago to delist these companies uh, when they weren't able to inspect the auditors. That authority was provided by Sarbanes-Oxley. So the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act was in a way political cover for the SEC to act. Uh, so it went through the legislative process and mandated that these companies be delisted if the PCAOB is unable to inspect, uh, conduct auditor inspections. And my view had always been that China would back down at the 11th hour on this issue. And the reason why I felt China would back down at the 11th hour, well, really two reasons. Number one, government officials from China have real money in these US listed China stocks. I mean, they, they, hold them, they hold them through proxies. So it's a personal wealth issue for real people within the CCP, number one. Number two, it doesn't really do much to address the, the underlying fraud problem. It's still completely asymmetrical if you're sitting in China and you want to defraud US investors. This doesn't provide any recourse for the SEC or DOJ against China-based fraudsters, even if you get the inspections. Um, now I did, you know, once the once the the DD Chuxing um, incident happened, I think summer of 21, I did change my view and think actually now we might be heading toward delisting because the US and China are so dug into these positions where they're really, you know, pulling apart that I felt that from a domestic politics, domestic political perspective, she was not going to allow inspections, you know, which again, I've been my thesis that they would allow this because it was really cosmetic, um, but this had become too big of a flashpoint and she wasn't going to allow it after all. Um, you just had this, this, this memorandum or this agreement seems like a bare bones agreement signed between um, the PCAOB and the China Securities Regulatory Commission to supposedly allow for inspections of auditors and audits to take place in Hong Kong. Um, yeah, I'm really worried about files that somehow don't make it from China to Hong, mainland China to Hong Kong. Um, but the really, really, really big question here, and very few people have, nobody's asked this publicly, so uh, I'm going to tell you what the, the main issue is here. In March of 2020, a revised securities law of the People's Republic of China went into effect. And there's a new provision in there, Article 177. That Article 177 expressly prohibits any individual or entity based in China from cooperating with overseas investigations without the prior consent of the CSRC. So... Up till that point, all of this had been basically unspoken. So the auditors and companies would say to the SEC, gee, you know, like, I think I would get in trouble if I gave you this information. No, there's no written law that I can point to, but this is what we're being told. Like maybe it's a state secret kind of issue and I could go to prison. So now it's, now it's been codified into written law that they're not allowed to do that. And this agreement doesn't address that. So the question is, while the PCAOB 
apparently, let's just take this agreement at face value for a moment, may obtain audit working papers as part of its audit inspection process. And there, there's a calendar which the PCAOB follows when it inspects auditors. I don't know that the, this doesn't seem to give the SEC the authority to say unilaterally without going through the PCAOB and without it going through its auditor inspection process, this doesn't give the SEC the authority to say, we're investigating XYZ issuer here. As part of that investigation, we want the audit working papers from the auditor. So that is lacking. And you know, my expectation is that since it is unaddressed in this agreement, that the CSRC in China will basically give the middle finger to the SEC or DOJ whenever they request those, those papers. So this is just really form over substance. And the other thing that is kind of funny is you see some of these most recent IPOs in the US of Chinese companies, like the one that was ticker HKD that went straight up. Um, I mean, the company did part of its own underwriting. And I kind of looked at this as this is China. I, I feel like these things happen with official sanction and that this is China just basically saying like, yeah, while we're on this collision course here and you're and you're delaying over over delisting the companies and we're stalling you there. We're just going to mess with you as much as possible between now and then or what, you know, whenever this blows up. So. I don't know, maybe, maybe that's a little bit too tinfoil hat, but, um, but there have been some obvious reindeer games being played in the past couple months by, by recent, uh, recently IPO Chinese companies. And like I said, I, I do think there's, there's official sanction to do that. And how do you approach shorts then when it comes to Chinese companies either listed in the U.S. or in China? Well, or I, you know, it's, it's interesting and it and it becomes tough right like our when we've shorted chinese companies it's always because they're frauds and the problem becomes as a short seller you you can get to a point where investors it's in their it's in their interest long side investors it's in their interest not to care whether they're frauds or not because when you look at how money gets into these china stocks it starts at the top right where you have these hard money allocators who say, okay, you know, we want to be, you know, this much long U.S. equities, U.S. corporates, U.S. government debt, European corporates, blah, blah, blah. And then there's this portion left over. They say, okay, we need high growth here. Well, you know, China's growing really fast. So we're going to allocate 5% to China equities, call it. And so then that flows down to managers who claim to have skill in allocating and actually putting that money to work in China. So you're China, you're a manager that has a mandate to put money to work in China equities. Well, you're not going to do state-owned enterprises, right? I mean, so first of all, you need large and liquid because these are still large amounts of money relative to the, the floats and the trading volumes of companies in Hong Kong and also on the domestic exchanges, domestic Chinese exchanges. So you, you need large and liquid. Well, the SOEs can be large and liquid, but you're not going to do SOEs because those are policy instruments. And most managers won't do the won't do the state-owned banks either for the same reason. So what are you left over with? That's China large and liquid. You're left over with these TMT names. And we think, like I said earlier, that these are rife with fraud. I mean, most of them are real businesses, unlike the early days of the China RTO fraud ex exposures. But um, 
but the numbers are the numbers are fake in you know to to some extent in you know in our view and in our experience but here's the thing if you have to put the money to work and you accept and i think a lot of the people who are insiders in this world accept what i just said that everything there almost everything is fraudulent to some extent like what are you going to do you're going to fire yourself and say you know what actually i'm not going to put any money to work no you're not going to do that and um but to me the the thing that was interesting you know that happened last year was a lot of these a lot of these guys who had guanxi you know these fund managers who claim to have an edge and because they understand what policymakers are thinking were caught completely flat-footed um when china by china's policy directive changes and i think that that just goes to show that this mentality that western money had before as well as the the chinese who would put it to work in china for them that oh china needs foreign capital china is not going to screw western investors that no longer applies you know china wants western capital but i think that they've decided they don't need western capital and that's why you saw all this turmoil in education in the you know like with dd and some of these other companies with the data um the data issues that's why you that's why you see this now because china knows it doesn't really need this capital and so the guys who sold themselves based on you know guanxi and i know what's going on i think that you know that's that's pretty transparent now like you know what's going on only to the extent you're allowed to know what's going on and i think us allocators should understand that um that you know they're not that they're that they're not dealing with these magical people over there um who you know who know everything that happens in the government because they don't and so how do you approach a short in general for um, people who look at a short selling hedge fund you're bearish you're have some forensic accounting is that how you go about it that i mean that that can be it so we so for us as activist short sellers going back to that point we have to be able to tell the market something that they don't know and it has to be profound enough and a lot of what we do is not forward looking so 99. Point whatever percent of equity investing is forward looking even for most traditional short sellers so the traditional short selling is this idea that well i think fundamentals are deteriorating faster than the market thinks and so i'm going to short this and it's often paired against longs you know i'm really bullish on these companies but i want to hedge out beta so i'm going to i'm going to short some stuff here that i think is you know is is worse than the market thinks that's where most short selling comes from what we do is we care about where information has either been misrepresented by the management so I break this into two categories. Um lies of commission and lies of omission. So lies of commission and when I say lies I'm using that a bit loosely here because you can I mean god knows, you know, I think the bigger issue in the markets then I don't think fraud is the biggest issue. I think what what's the bigger issue is what's legal to say and do technically just on the right side of being legal but it's highly misleading. So when I say lies I'm including misleading statements so of commission so saying or implying something is the case when it is not but the lies of omission are just as important and maybe interesting where they don't tell you they might say we just bought this company it's great blah 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 
but they don't tell you that the company just lost its three biggest customers. That's a lie of omission. So what we do as activist short sellers, we're looking at we're going we're looking backward. So this is what really did happen. This is what really did not happen. And we're generally not trying to extrapolate the future from that. We're leaving that to investors where we say, okay, you thought that the company earned a dollar a share because that's what they reported. However, we've just shown you that 40 cents came from these transactions with companies that are affiliates, but that they don't consolidate and that these companies just loaded up on debt in order to buy off the reporting company. So now that we've showed you that 40 cents out of the dollar is really, it's not real. I mean, in our view, you go figure it out. What do you think this stock is worth then since we just told you that the earnings aren't pure earnings basically. So that that's how we approach it. Um, so it has to be something the market doesn't know and it has to be profound. And the, you know, it's easier to get the first one right, what the, what the market doesn't know. But sometimes in terms of, you know, the profundity, it's a little bit of guesswork because even before COVID, I was fond of saying that every year the bar of what investors care about gets higher. I mean, in a way, I believe, I mean, I've, I've said this for years as well, that we as activist short sellers, we are a media business. Okay, we are in the business of reporting, I guess, bad news, so to speak. And I think that based on my interactions with people in financial media, such as yourself, and also traditional media, the information environment just became much crazier over the past decade and change, I mean, especially during the Trump and, and post-Trump years. And so the bar for getting people to you know, pick their heads up and say, yeah, this matters to me, what's going on in XYZ company, this story is important to me, that bar did get higher before COVID. And then when COVID hit, I mean, A, you had this flood of money. So I kind of, by the end of 2020, I was saying nothing matters anymore, right? The most fraudulent companies that we can find, the stocks are just ripping. Um, but also, you know, you had, you had the flood of money, but you're also competing against just these, this crazy news of, of COVID and how it's ravaging the world. So the profundity is the hard part. Um, now, as stocks deflate and people lose money, risk aversion becomes more of a factor. So even though the market caps of the things that we would like to short, those market caps shrink and then maybe some of these companies fall below our radar because they're just not big enough and liquid enough, we think that the bar gets lowered a little bit and people are more willing to sit up and take notice of the stories that we want to tell as they've experienced losses elsewhere in their portfolio. So that's basically, you know, but, but the main thing is, I mean, we, 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 there's so many companies that we know of that are misrepresenting things, but the question is, is it material enough to the long holders that they would re-rate? And that's what we're always trying to answer. That's interesting. And uh, you know what, I want to get to the audience questions. Um, Donal asked, and I was going to ask this too, what's your view of the ESG ratings rush? And I know that you have some, some thoughts about greenwashing and all the fraud opportunities there. Uh, riff on that a little bit. Oh God, where <laughs> to start. Um, okay. So I, when I used to get asked about ESG, maybe 2018, before I really looked into it, um, 
it sounded to me like what I like the paper straw. And I was living in San Francisco at the time. And so I'd go and get an iced coffee at Pete's and, you know, big plastic cup with a plastic lid. And then somebody stuck this paper straw in there, you know, which didn't change the fact that I'm about to throw away a lot of plastic. It just made the drink taste bad. But having lived in Northern California for a number of years, I appreciated why this happens because there's this culture of kind of just wanting to pat oneself on the back for doing something easy and, you know, say like, okay, I'm a good person. I can move on and live the rest of my life now. And I feel like that's effectively what ESG is. Um, now there, there's one, so one very, very important philosophical question. And I'm, and I have my answer firmly on this one is whether the private sector can solve these societal and planetary problems. I believe that it cannot. And so I'm actually borrowing from a guy who uh, used to be the CIO of sustainability at BlackRock, Tarek Fancy, who's Fancy. written about this and he's done a lot of media appearances where to him, sustainable investing is, as he puts it, giving wheat grass to a cancer patient. It's a placebo. The longer that we delude ourselves here and say that the private sector can solve these problems, we don't need the government to step in and you know mandate carbon taxes or limits on XYZ, um, it basically, we're, we're not changing, we're not actually improving things. So the reality I think is, as much as it sucks for a capitalist to say this, the markets can't solve these problems. That's not the job of companies and it's not what shareholders want at the end of the day. So it's, and basically I think that one of the reasons why we suffer from this delusion is BlackRock does a great business on sustainable products, right? They can charge more, you know, X basis points more for their ESG compliant index funds than they can for their S&P 500 index funds. So it's kind of like a fairy tale that the ESG product providers tell society to justify these businesses that they have, but it's not actually going to improve the planet in substantive ways. That's number one. Number two. We recently have done some work in the solar space in the U.S., in which there are significant subsidies. And what we found is that even with the subsidies, these are non-economic businesses and they cheat the government in order to inflate the subsidies. And they're still not economic businesses. And when I stepped back and I said, OK, this is what Sunrun is doing. And I think it's prevalent throughout the solar industry. Well, let's move back. You know, there was another company we shorted in July called Hannon Armstrong that finances these things and their accounting is legal, but it is so massively misleading and just greatly immoral in my view, in terms of what they, what they make investors think the company you know, the value that it creates when it destroys massive value. But then going back further, we shorted a bioplastics company in September of 21 Danimer, that's absolutely fallen apart. I mean, it's, you know, it's like the very, the technology wasn't there to the extent that investors were led to believe it was. Go back before that, we shorted in March of 21, a company called XL Fleet that was doing vehicle electrification and they massively misrepresented their sales pipeline. And that's around, and then before that, you had Hindenburg shorting Lordstown, shorting Nikola, Almost everything in the ESG space, you know, uh, that I mean, the companies that have really planted the flag and said, yeah, we're green. I mean, hardcore grifters, the cleanest company by far is Tesla. 
by a country mile is Tesla. And they make real cars, and we can debate whether the product is good or not. Um, but Elon Musk has certainly told a lot of obvious lies. I mean, he's actually been, he's actually agreed to be sanctioned by the SEC for stock manipulation. So if that's the gold standard and everybody else is far behind, I mean, these are, if these are the guys who are supposed to save us, save the planet, I think we're screwed. And, you know, the and part, part of the problem is, and this also ties into my observations living in kind of ESG ground zero, Northern California for a while is nobody asks questions. It's again, like nobody asks really is the paper straw, does it make sense? Um, nobody asks questions about whether these products are really that green. I mean, when you produce solar panels in China with coal fired power plants, forced labor, you put them on boats, diesel engines, they come across here. Um, they, they degrade faster than the solar companies want to admit. Like, what is really the carbon savings? So then the materials that are mined to make them and the batteries, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, you know, and I'll, I'll wrap it on, on this, but I think a great example of this not asking questions, it's, it's what's happening right now at this moment in California. Now, I live in Texas now, but we still have a house in California, so we get these notices about the power outages. So California enacted a law that prevents, that prohibits the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles starting in 2035, okay? But before doing that, California shut down all, but I think one nuclear reactor, and I think shut down substantially all of the natural gas power plants in the state. And so they've never really answered this, they've never sat back and said, well, what do we need? You know, we're, we're trying to fight climate change, which, by the way, is a fool's errand. You're one state in the United States, which is one country in the world. You know, you can't stop climate change. But rather than asking, well, how do we adapt to climate change? They just said, yeah, let's, you know, let's have subsidies on top of the federal subsidies for solar and for EVs and for wind. And without asking, well, since the population is expected to grow, economic output's expected to grow. How do we make sure our grid is resilient enough? You know, and then they go and they effectively try to mandate that people buy EVs starting in 2035 when they haven't asked and answered these questions about grid resilience and, 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 how, to, and how to provide power. To me, this is just emblematic of the whole ESG thing. It's like, it's just a quick, you know, I'll pat myself on the back and move along without really being strategic about stuff. And I will hammer home that last point, uh, that second to last point that I made about why is ESG really about this facade, this uh, fallacy about stopping climate change as opposed to adapting to climate change? Because we could do everything we want in the West, but China isn't going to, they're, they're not going to suddenly transition away from coal power. India is not. A lot of the world is not. So why aren't we adapting instead of, you know, this fool's errand of wholesale trying to prevent it. Carson, I want to get a few more questions in. I know, I know we're taking up more of your time. Uh, so where are the best opportunities for short sellers in today's environment, asks Peter. Oh, boy. Um, so, look, I, I do think the ESG space has some really good opportunities because there's a lot of misleading investors there. The hard part is there is this froth and with Joe Manchin signing on to the Inflation Reduction Act, sure, it's not going to reduce inflation. Um, 
there's some froth there, but I think what we've seen now in this tightening environment is the froth can recede pretty quickly. So I do think the, you know, quote, ESG and green space has interesting short opportunities there. I mean, we're short Hannon and Armstrong, as I mentioned. That's one that I think the Inflation Reduction Act might really negatively impact their ability to cosmetically dress up their earnings by changing how these tax credits are actually sold. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, China is a tough environment, long or short, because policy, I mean, nobody has insights as policy, as I was saying, and policy can change on a dime there. And whether, you know, and if you're long, you can get, you can wake up and, you know, you're smoked. And if you're short, um, you're shortening in a place where I don't, like I said, I don't think people want to care about fraud there anymore. And, um, and if policy suddenly changes, you know, that's, it's a tough place to be short. So I think just being, um, you know, like I, I think right now when you're looking at the, the growth names, I think a lot of those are, are really good shorts, you know, the stuff that's in ARC's portfolio or maybe ARC especially in this tightening environment, but you will have these paroxysms of these things squeezing um, and you just have to be prepared to deal with that. But I mean, a lot of those are just basically not real businesses, not real companies. And I do feel like we're, we're headed ultimately to destination where at least temporarily, if you're not real as a company, that does matter and it will be reflected in your stock price. And I want to ask you, uh, there's two questions, one from Gerald, and they're more about the process of shorting. Um, one, Gerald says, it's one thing to get the short decision correct. What's your advice on monetizing the position, timing, etc.? And then David asks, so when you find a specific company that's failing to provide factual information, do you use puts or only short the shares? So they want to ask about timing, puts, et cetera. How, you know, what's the process for you? Yeah, both both great questions. And uh, and yeah, I think they're kind of getting you know, in the same area here. The timing has been, so if you look at what's happened in the asset management industry since the financial crisis and short-oriented managers have just, vast majority have shut down. I mean, there are only a few left who are doing you know, well pre-financial crisis. Only a few of them are left. And it's because post GFC in this really loose, you know, zero in real interest rate, near zero rate environment, the hard part for them was getting the timing. I mean, a lot of them, their short theses were correct, but it's just they, they prior to the financial crisis, prior to this unprecedented monetary stimulus, they, when they said, yeah, I think it's going to be the next quarter or two that the wheels are going to fall off, they were generally able to get that right. Whereas they had not been able to do that, um, at least in the you know prior to prior to tightening. So, I do think that's that's a very tough game. And we, for a while, we instituted a strategy that um, I mean, we were going to try to market this, and basically because of personnel issues internally, we we didn't push it. But um, where we did use long dated crash puts. So what we did was, and this is also riskier now because of the environment we're in with rising rates, but we went long senior credits of the companies, often bank loans, and we used the coupon payments from those to buy long dated, deep out of the money puts. And so we had to do this whole analysis to convince ourselves that in a bankruptcy scenario, um, that our gains on the puts would offset the losses that we would take on the credit. 
Um, so I do think that if you're if you're a non-activist short seller, that if you can structure, and it really depends. I mean, some puts are just too expensive to to put on, and it doesn't make sense. But if you have a view that a company is basically going to go way down, like close to zero, I'm not talking, you know, oh, I think it's going to go down 40%. But if, if, you, if you have a view that it's going to go way down, then it can make sense to buy long dated puts that are pretty far away from being in the money, rolling those puts before your time decay, your theta really kicks in. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a strategy that'll cost you money. Um, I mean, maybe you can fund it by, you know, like, you know, some by by selling option, you know, selling calls. But I mean, then you're really doubling down. But um, but I mean, we we do that sometimes also where we'll short the underlying stock. We'll buy calls to protect us on the upside against, you know, uh, a rip. And then we'll sell puts that are far enough away from where we shorted the stock, where we would still make some money if the puts decline in price. But at least we're able to offset the cost of the calls. And we might do that for short windows of time when the company is going to report or there's going to be some macro news. There's some macro data point that's coming out that could cause a rip. So that's those are those are things that we do tactically at times to protect our positions. Uh, but, yeah, it's the timing part of the short thesis when you're not an activist. I mean, that that's the be all end all. And that's what's killed. That's what's killed the short selling industry is you know, getting that timing right um, since the financial crisis. I want to fit in one more question and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Katrina asks, do you think short sellers will pursue additional whistleblower awards from the SEC? <laughs> um, yeah, that's a, uh, uh, Katrina probably knows why I'm, I'm chuckling there. Um, look, I, I think the, the SEC's whistleblower program is, is obviously, um, I mean, it, it obviously can use some some help. I mean, my whistleblower award, I mean, we, you know, that was a 2011 report and outreach to the SEC. And finally, 11 years later, I was granted an award, um, but it's being held up in appeal right now uh, by somebody who wasn't granted an award. But, um, you know, the thing is the, the people who are, so a lot of the whistleblower claims come from people who are inside companies who have access to the information and see it directly. Okay, this is what the company is doing. That's illegal. And then they file whistleblower claims. But if you don't have access to that information, which obviously being a market participant, you know, we better not have access to that information if we're going to trade. Um, you're on the outside. And the people who are the best in the world at detecting fraud from the outside go into short selling. So if the SEC, you know, if the policymakers want to ensure a good flow of high quality cases that are not just from insiders, many of pe many of the people on the ins on the inside who file these claims have been at least at one time or another complicit in the wrongdoing. So if they want purely if they want if they want this information from outsiders it has to come, they have to be open to it being short sellers. And by the way, like short sellers often lose money on our shorts. And if you look at Wirecard, that's a great example. I mean, people started talking about that being a fraud in 2008. It took 12 years, not till 2020, did it blow up and it went way up before it did. And even guys like uh, John Hempton and Bronte Capital 
who said, uh, I mean, I think he said publicly that I mean, he's been short Wirecard, I think, continuously longer than anybody I know, that he lost money overall on the short. Um, I mean, there were guys who were short Learnout and Houseby back in the day, and they lost money on the short, even though they were right. So I do think that, so this really, I think, you know, I'm answering Katrina's question with a point about policy and what policymakers want. And I would, as a short seller, I would like to see the process move faster. Um, and I, I certainly, you know, I, I certainly hope that they, you know, the policymakers in the SEC don't fall into this, you know, I, I think this trap of thinking that, oh, we shouldn't allow uh, short sellers, you know, who are trying to profit from their position otherwise from being, uh, sh from be filing whistleblower tips. But it's still, it's still like buying a lottery ticket. Okay. I mean, it's better than buying a lottery ticket in terms of your odds, but it's still, still like really stacked against you in terms of the odds that you'll get an award. So, I mean, to say nothing of the company, there has to be money from a settlement usually. And so that precludes almost everything in China. I mean, the Focus Media Award was different because Carlisle led a buyout of Focus Media. So I think Carlisle just said, look, we want to settle this, you know, Focus and Chairman Jiang, just throw the money at the SEC to put this to bed. So, so yeah, it's not only is it a company that's doing something wrong, you have to be able to hand a case to the SEC where they can follow the roadmap because God knows, I mean, these are government attorneys. They're not working, you know, they're not going to, you know, do the equivalent of, you know, 2,500 billable hours a year that private sector attorneys do. And, um, and they've got, you know, and they've, and they don't have a lot of money at their disposal to investigate. So you have to really hand them these things with a clear roadmap and basically on a silver platter. And then, you know, if you've done, if you've identified a good company and you've laid the case out the right way, then you depend on the SEC actually doing something and being able to get a sizable enough settlement from the company such that you can, um, that you can get paid on your claim. And it's, it's years. It's, it's always going to be years at best before you get paid. So, um, you know, you might as well as a short seller do it, but it's, you know, it, I, it's not a viable business. So for people who say, well, why don't you do that instead of being a short seller? It's not a viable business, in my view, to, you know, uh, just built on whistleblower claims. Carson, one more, just one more question. How long will people sit on the sidelines with cash? And are you guys sitting on any cash? It's a, a, this is from Leslie. Um, well, that, that takes that takes a crystal ball. I mean, yes, we, you know, we 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 do sit on cash. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like to think that we're not at the bottom of the bear market. Um, but you know, once once people are convinced that things are going up, the money's going to flood in. And I just said the most obvious, least profound thing imaginable. But, you know, really, <laughs> who can you know, who knows the timing of that? Um, Carson, we need to wrap it up. Thanks so much. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, and uh, thanks for being here. And Thank we you. hope to listen uh, to our next episode tomorrow. Mansion Global reporter Leslie Hendrickson will be joined by experts from Redfin. Sotheby's International Realty and Douglas Elliman. They'll have a discussion on how sellers can make the most of a changing market. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. Thanks, Carson. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.